to uh, set aside the things that might distract us and instead help us to concentrate on understanding your word correctly. Uh, But more than that, we pray that your spirit might be at work tonight, convicting us of its truth, encouraging us by it and challenging us where we need to change. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we've been looking at Mark's gospel for the last little, little while and we're going to be for the next few weeks still. Uh, and what I've been inviting you to do and what I've sort of made as the, the focus of what we've been doing as we look at Mark is that I want you to meet or re-meet Jesus uh, and I want you to be amazed by him, not by what I share about him but by what, what we see about him in Mark's gospel. Uh, and if you remember, I sort of threw out that challenge a few weeks ago that for many of us who've been Christians For any length of time, what happens is we become so familiar with Jesus and all these amazing things he does that we lose that sense of amazement. He does these incredible things and we treat it like it's just sort of old news. And so each week we're asking that question, what has amazed me about Jesus tonight from this part of Scripture? Uh, But what I found when I read Mark's Gospel with people who haven't read it before, so when I'm reading with people for the first time, is that one of the things that, that amazes them, or not even amazes them, sort of confuses them, if you like, is the way sinners loved Jesus, but religious people hated Jesus. Uh, and that confuses people, uh, and it sort of shocks people, because usually it's a religious person who sort of asks them to come along and learn about Jesus. And so they think, well, why? Jesus hates you if you're religious. You, you know, well, he hates religious people. And, and as they read it, they think, why is Jesus so anti-religion? Because it is. Jesus seems to genuinely hate religion, especially in Mark's gospel, you see it. He seems to go out of his way to upset religious people. It's not that Jesus is sort of doing his thing and religious people happen to get in the way. It's, he sort of sees, there's a religious person. I'll go over there and offend them. He makes a conscious decision to change tack and upset them. And it should shock us, it tends to shock people, but it should shock us if you think about it. Because if we are anything, we here, we are religious people. I mean, you're here at church on a Sunday night and not watching, what's the latest show on a Sunday night? I don't know. But, you know, My Kitchen Rules, is that on? I don't know. I wouldn't have a clue. But anyway, that's just something about me. Anyway. And we've already seen in the first two chapters, if you flick back over the two chapters we've looked at so far, Mark 1 and Mark 2, we've already seen this sort of battle developing between Jesus and the religious establishment of his day. And that battle that's been developing over the first chapter and a half really comes to a head in these three little connected stories that Nicola read out for us a minute ago. So let's look at each in turn. You'll see the three headings on your outline, the three different stories. And the first battle was over fasting. And that's in verses 18 to 22. People watching Jesus, wherever Jesus went and his disciples went, people were watching them. They they knew he was interesting. They knew that, that he was worth watching. And what they noticed was that he and his disciples never seemed to fast. That is, they never seemed to take a day aside where they didn't eat anything. That's what fasting is, if you didn't know that. Uh, and that was strange to them because one of the badges of being a good religious Jew was that you fasted. And, and so they thought, that's strange. You know, you know, everyone else sets aside these days where you don't eat. And it was a way of expressing your repentance to God. That's why they fasted. And in particular, by Jesus' time, fasting was seen as a way of twisting God's arm so that he would send the Messiah. 
So, so there's writings from the Jews where they thought if, if we could just get everyone to fast more, then God might send his saviour king to, to set up his kingdom. If God's people would just do that, then that might happen. But the thing is, fasting wasn't actually something that God demanded from his people in the Old Testament law. Uh, the only time Jews were required to fast, according to the Old Testament, was on the Day of Atonement. So the day when they met together and put all their sin on an animal that was sacrificed as an offering for their sin, to take away their sin, on that day they were required to fast as a sign of repentance of sin. But by the time of Jesus, it had become customary that a good Jew should fast two days a week. And usually it was set, Monday and Thursday were the days of fasting if you were a good religious Jew. Uh, someone told me about there's a diet now where you fast two days a week and you get to eat whatever you like for the other five days of the week. Has anyone heard of this diet? You know, they should call that the Pharisee's diet because that's what they did. <laughs> they, they fasted on Monday and Thursday and ate whatever they want for the rest. But anyway, people are watching Jesus and they saw, they, they said, John the Baptist and his disciples, they fast. The, the Pharisees and their disciples, they fast. They're good religious Jews. But Jesus' disciples, they didn't. They just seemed to ignore these religious rules. So the people asked, why is that? You know, if Jesus is who people are saying he is, then why is he less religious than these good people we know? And now this wasn't just an innocent question. They weren't asking out of interest. There's, a, there's an implied criticism here. They're asking to try and trick Jesus up. So how did Jesus answer their criticism? Look at verse 19. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. Now that is a fairly obvious metaphor that crosses all cultures at all times. Uh, I mean, to put it in our context, you do not fast, you don't start your diet on the night of a wedding reception. That is when you are getting a free good feed. So, so you don't fast. Just a hint for you, if you're going to a wedding reception anytime soon, don't start a diet the day before, start the day after. The, the wedding reception, while the groom and the bride are still with you, that is the time for partying, it's the time for rejoicing. The time for dieting is the next day. But then the people listening, you know, they, they got that, but then they would have thought for a minute. And, and they realised, hang on, hang on, is Jesus saying that he is the bridegroom? You see, is Jesus saying we're not meant to fast because we should be celebrating that he is with us. And more than that, these people knew their Old Testaments much better than most of us do. And so they would have thought, hang on, in prophets like Isaiah, doesn't God say, I am the bridegroom, and Israel, my people, are the bride? So they're thinking, hang on, what's, what's Jesus saying? Who is he claiming to be? And that is exactly what Jesus was saying exactly what Jesus was claiming he is saying why fast to try to get God to send his Messiah why fast to try and get God to come amongst you when he's already here now is not a time for mourning it's a time for rejoicing because God's saviour king is here now remember we already know who Jesus is we know the end of the story but put yourself in their shoes for a moment Jesus has just made an incredible claim, an arrogant claim, really, unless, of course, it's true. And so while they're sort of still reeling from that, he gives them a couple of little parables to think about. Look at verse 21. It says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth 
on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth and a worse tear is made. And no one puts a new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost as well as the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. People get confused by these little parables. Uh, They can't work out what he's talking about. But actually, I think the point is really, really simple. What Jesus is saying is, I have come to bring something new. That's what he's saying. To these people who are stuck in the old, in the old covenant, in the old testament, he's saying, I have come to bring something new. My kingdom is different to everything you've had before. And following me will look different to everything you've ever done before. See, when you patch your clothes, there's a little hint for you if you need to patch your clothes. I never patch my clothes. But anyway, when you patch your clothes, you need to shrink. You need to put it in the wash, the little patch, before you put it on the clothes. Because otherwise, when it does shrink, it will tear off and make the hole worse than it was before. That's the point he's making. So he's saying, don't put this new thing I'm giving you on the old religion you had. It's something new. And his other analogy there, he said, to put it into our terms, when you get a nice new bottle of wine, don't go and pour it into the old bottle that's still got the dregs at the bottom from the old bottle you had. He's saying that'll just ruin both of them. There's something new happening. Jesus is saying, my message is new and I change everything. See, if you just try to add me to your old religion, it won't work. I haven't just come to get you to be better Jews who fast more and obey all the laws a bit better than you used to do. I haven't come to just say, be a bit more religious and then God will be happy with you. So many people think that's what Jesus' message was, that Jesus' message was to come and say, just pull your socks up a little bit, be a bit more moral, be a bit better. He's saying, no, 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 I have come with a new message. The kingdom I am bringing, the message I am preaching, is a new message of forgiveness and grace and mercy. See, Jesus is getting them ready for the fact that following him is not about being religious and it's not about obeying laws. It's about trusting him and knowing him and then serving him with a joyful heart, not out of obligation, but out of joy and thankfulness. See, that's why as a Christian now, you are free to fast if you want. Is it any wonder with me as senior minister of this church that we don't have a great focus on fasting? I just ask you that. But if you want to fast, you can fast. But don't ever let anyone tell you you have to. You're free to fast if you want to. You're free to not fast if you don't want to. Just like you're free to eat pork if you want to or not eat pork if you want to. Or eat meat on Friday if you want to or not eat meat on Friday. Whatever other religious laws people come up with, they're all irrelevant. Do them if you want and don't do them if you don't. It's interesting There's been a resurgence of interest in fasting in evangelical Christian circles lately. And you notice it on Facebook. People have to post about what they're giving up for Lent. Have you seen that before Easter, that period before Easter where people give things up for Lent and people talk about fasting and so forth? That's fine as far as it goes, but I just want to say to you, it's dangerous too. Have you noticed when you read the Gospels, how when, when does fasting come up? When does Jesus bring fasting more often than anything any other time? He brings it up when he wants to point out the error of doing religion to be seen to be better than other people. 
That's the context Jesus brings fasting up in. Fasting has always had a tendency to be used by Pharisees, to be used by religious people, to to change from doing what it's meant to be, a way of focusing the mind, and very quickly sort of morphing into self-righteous boasting. That's that's what fasting has done. So in 30 AD, what it was, it was, look at me, I'm so gaunt, I'm I'm so tired. And, And Do you know why? I'm fasting. Didn't you know? It's just between me and God, but I thought I'd tell you about it. What is it today? I'll tell you what it is today. It's posting it on Facebook. I'm giving up coffee for Lent. I'm, I'm giving... Notice how it's always something stupid? It's never something important. Give up sin for Lent. <laughs> you know? If you're really serious about it. But anyway, Facebook... I, I know you guys think I'm like some antiquated before-my-time dinosaur, but, but social media is the medium of the Pharisee of the modern world. That is what it is. Because it's all designed to say, look at me and look at how religious I am. So whenever you see a Christian friend putting up there, I'm giving this up for Lent or, I'm, or something like that, just say, just talk about it with God. Don't tell me. I don't want to know about it. You know, you know don't shout it from the rooftops. Keep it between you and God if you want to do it. That's why we don't make a big thing of Lent in our parish. That's why we don't have times of fasting. Very easily over this month of prayer, we could have made it a month of prayer and fasting. But I wanted it just to be a month of prayer because fasting is just one of those things that very quickly lends itself to pharisaical religion rather than grace-filled Christianity. But Jesus did say there is one time when his disciples would fast. Look at verse 20. But the time will come when the groom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. What was he referring to there, do you think? When would his disciples mourn and fast? It's at his death, isn't it? It's when he's crucified. He's saying that was the day for fasting when he is taken away from them. Even here, he's getting them ready for that. He's getting them ready for what is to come. But when he was with them, and I want to say now, Now for us, now that Jesus has risen from the dead, now you can fast if you like, but now is the time for rejoicing. We don't come together on a Sunday night to mourn. We come together to sing and sing praises, happy day and all that sort of stuff. Because now is the time for rejoicing and proclaiming. That is the era we live in. Well, if we move on, it wasn't just the fact that Jesus wasn't into fasting that was upsetting the religious people. Even worse was what he did on the Sabbath. Uh, Because fasting, well, that was one of the Pharisees' laws. You know, that's okay. But the Sabbath law, that's part of the Ten Commandments. That's one of the, you know, the big laws of the Old Testament. So the battle really heats up in the next two little stories about Jesus and the Sabbath. So let's look from verse 23. He says, On the Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to make their way picking some heads of grain. Now, the Old Testament law was very, very clear that you were meant to rest on the Sabbath. Do not work from sunrise to sunset on the Saturday. So the first problem was that Jesus was travelling on the Sabbath. That was their first problem with him. You were meant to just sort of stay still 
in your home on the Sabbath. He wasn't meant to travel around the countryside wandering through the fields of grain. Secondly, though, he was letting his disciples pick heads of grain to eat. And by the way, in case you're worried, they weren't stealing. Jesus may have been encouraging them to break the Sabbath law, but he wasn't encouraging them to steal. Uh, Under the law, you were allowed to pick grain with your hand from your neighbour's fields. You weren't allowed to go in there with like a cutting tool and sort of take his whole crop. That's stealing. But part of the way you cared for the community, the part of the way they looked after one another was you were allowed to pick grain for yourself wherever you went. Now, the problem here was they were doing it on the Sabbath. That was the problem. Now, we have to understand how serious this was. Uh, Under the Old Testament law, deliberately breaking the Sabbath was punishable by death by stoning. That's how serious this was. Uh, Because it was deliberately disobeying God. God had made it very clear. For six days you shall labour, but on the seventh day you shall rest. So, So to break the Sabbath was to disobey God. So the Pharisees' question was legitimate, even if they ask it in an attacking, sort of aggressive way. So look at verse 24. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're saying, you're their teacher, you're their rabbi, Jesus. Why are you letting them do this? Why are you letting them break the law? Do you notice how Jesus never answers a question directly? I reckon that would have got quite annoying if I was a Pharisee at the time. But anyway, he points them back to an incident in the Old Testament. Look there at how Jesus tells it in verse 25. He said to them, have you never read... What David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and also gave some to his companions. You might know that story well. It comes from uh, 1 Samuel 21. Uh, It was at that time where David, if you know your Old Testament, it was at the time where David had been anointed to be God's king. David was anointed to be the Messiah, but he wasn't yet made king. So he'd had the oil poured on his head and people knew David is God's anointed, but Saul was still sitting in the palace. Saul was still sitting on the throne. And so Saul was wandering around the countryside trying to kill David and anyone who helped David and anyone who supported David. So David and his men are on the run and they come to this priest And they say, we're desperately hungry, we need something to eat. But the only bread the priest had was the sacred bread, the bread that had been set aside and put on the altar for God alone. So according to God's law, David and his friends shouldn't have eaten it. But that priest back then knew that they were doing God's work. He knew this is the Lord's anointed, this is King David. And these men are protecting the Lord's anointed and they're hungry, they're in need and so he let them eat it. Now it's not hard to see the point Jesus is making, is it? He's saying sometimes you can be so caught up in obeying the religious dictates of the law that you forget what the whole law is all about. David broke the law. Jesus isn't saying... David didn't actually break the law. There's a technicality that he can get out on. He's not, he doesn't care about that. He's saying, no, no, David broke the law, but God did not condemn him for it because on this occasion, there was a human need that was more important than the religious ritual. 
And so now Jesus says to them, why do you think God gave us the Sabbath law in the first place? Was it to test us? Is God like some crazy judge up in the skies who just says, I'm going to give them this thing and make them miserable. And I'm just going to see if they can cope with being miserable for one day a week. Is that why God gave them the Sabbath law? Was it just an arbitrary law to test if they could go a whole day without doing anything? See, that's what the Pharisees had made it into. They'd made it into a burden. They'd made it into a test you had to keep. But Jesus says, no, 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 look at verse 27. Then he told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. See, God made the Sabbath law for the good of his people. But the Pharisees cared more about fulfilling the letter of the law than about the reason God had made it in the first place. See, Jesus is asking them to look at themselves and ask the question if they are applying God's law more harshly than God does. See, God made it so that they would have a time each week to take a day out, to take a break from the hard work they needed to do to survive. And if we think we worked hard, they worked harder than us. You know what I mean? Back in their, their time, they worked six days a week just to survive. And the Sabbath day was God's way of saying, take a break from that to rest, to restore yourself. And it was give men, to give men and women a time to do that. And more than that, it was a day to take the time to remember God and to come together and remember God's love for them and grace and his mercy. God didn't intend the Sabbath to be a burden like the Pharisees had turned it into, he intended it to be a joy and a blessing. Now, as Christians, we are not under the Old Testament law. We are not bound by the Sabbath day, just like we don't have to fast. But God's wisdom is still what is best for us. God's wisdom is to set aside one day in seven for rest and renewal and to reflect together on his love and his grace. From very early days, Christians have switched the Sabbath day to Sunday in recognition of Jesus' resurrection on the Sunday. Now, at some points in history, Christians have needed to be reminded of this passage about how they treat Sunday. See, taking a day out is not a law that should be regulated. It's not a sin to go and buy some lunch on a Sunday. I went and bought a barbecue chicken today. I was not sinning. I may have been sinning as I drove there and that silly man cut in front of me, but that's another matter. (laughs) You you see, but it's not a sin to do something, to do work on a Sunday. It's not meant to constrict us. It's not meant to bind us. It's a day of rest and reflection and it is meant to be a joyful thing. A reminder that there are things that are more important than work. A a reminder that God provides for us. It's a, a, a chance to take time to join with others in praising God. But in the end, Mark's gospel isn't concerned so much with the question of the Sabbath day. That's just the flashpoint that that caused the argument. He's more concerned with seeing what it teaches us about Jesus. And that's his point in verse 28. Look, Look there with me. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. What's he saying there? He's saying, yes, you need to understand that the Sabbath is for man. I've taught you that. You need to understand you shouldn't get so caught up on being religious that you forget what it's all about. But more than that, what you really need to understand is who I am. That's what Jesus is saying. 
He's saying, look, I don't really care whether you pick a head of grain or don't pick a head of grain. I really don't care. Go for a walk on the Sabbath or don't. Doesn't matter. But do understand that me, this man in front of you, is the Son of Man. And I am the Lord, not just of the Sabbath, but of every day of your life. And I am the one who can give you much more than the law. I can give you a rest that lasts forever. I can give you a place in my kingdom. And I can give you forgiveness and salvation. But clearly, the Pharisees would not listen. They would not change their mind. Because sometime later, we don't know how many weeks later, on another Sabbath day, we have our third little incident. And this is chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, if you come there with me now. Uh, This time, Jesus is in the synagogue, uh, doing a bit like what we do now. Meeting with other Jews to pray and hear from God's word. And look at how it talks about it from chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a paralysed hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now the earlier story, the one we just looked at, the question about the disciples picking grain, I think that was understandable. They were asking it with an evil intent, but, but it's an understandable, real question. Here, this is evil, what the Pharisees are doing. And you really see the perversity of these people in this story. Because here they are, these proudly religious people, and they're in the synagogue where they're meant to come to pray to God and to hear from his word. And instead, they are using a crippled man as sort of like a trap for Jesus. That is evil, isn't it? It's perverse. You see, there were actually exceptions for dealing with life-threatening situations on the Sabbath. If you came across a person in life-threatening need, you were allowed to help them under the law. But this wasn't life-threatening. Jesus could heal this guy on a Tuesday if he wanted to, or on a Thursday or some other day of the week. He didn't have to do it on the Sabbath. So it's like they're saying, come on, Jesus, heal him. We dare you. It's perverse, isn't it? And I sort of imagine, and I worry that perhaps this is just my personality being imposed on Jesus at this point. But I sort of imagine that if Jesus wasn't going to heal him before, well, now it's like Jesus says, well, bad luck. I'll do it. As I say, I think that might just be my personality. But it's like in the face of that sort of an attitude, I'll do it. So he calls the man out the front of the synagogue so that everyone can see him. And then he asks them all a question. Look at verse 4. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil? To save life or to kill? You see what he's done? He's cut through the rubbish to just drive home the point and make it very, very stark for them. And they know the answer. There's no person on earth who doesn't know the answer to that question. Of course God wants us to do good. They know the answer, but it says they stayed silent. And you can feel the righteous anger in Jesus. Look at verse 5. After looking around at them with anger and sorrow at the hardness of their hearts, he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. And surely the only right response to that. You know, if there was someone here who walked out who had a crippled hand and and it just unfolded 
and became usable again. The only right response is to praise God, isn't it? That is the only right response to this, but not the Pharisees. Look at verse 6. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Do you see the irony there, by the way? Surely plotting is work. They're condemning Jesus for working on the Sabbath and then they go out and plot evil. So they work and it's not even good, it's evil. It's very, very easy to stand in judgment over the Pharisees, isn't it? As you read this, we know they're the bad guys. You don't need them to dress in black or something. Say, oh, they're the bad guys of the movie. You know, you know, it's so easy. These judgmental people who are caught up on rules and regulations, those judgmental people who are more concerned with people thinking that they are holy and that they are righteous than they are religious, they're more concerned with that than the actual state of their sinful hearts. It's very easy to judge them, isn't it? But I just want to say, be very slow to judge. Because the temptation to be a Pharisee is in every one of us. For 2,000 years, every generation of Christians has had this struggle. And we won't be the first to not have it. You see, the temptation to get so focused on being religious that we forget why we do the things we do. So for people of our generation who come here in a church and we don't have pews, and, you know, there's a mess up here and there's no organ and that sort of thing. We think, we've got rid of the religion. But we have those things that we do, don't we? That we just tick off as the religious things we do. We care more about ticking the boxes than about truly knowing our Lord. See, we care more about ticking the boxes than about truly knowing Christ. So what happens is Christians start to get caught up on how a person is baptised rather than caring about getting people to be baptised by sharing the gospel with them. And Christians get caught up on how often or how we do the Lord's Supper rather than remembering Jesus' death every time we meet together, however you do it. You see, at its worst, we're more concerned with the trappings of religion, with being religious and appearing religious than we are with being godly and with being loving. So we can become more concerned with the superficial trappings of being a Christian, more concerned that people see us at church and see us being righteous and see us being religious than we are with the real fruit of faith. What is the real fruit of faith? It's loving people and in particular sharing the message of Jesus with them. The book of James in the New Testament, he was writing it only a few years after the church had started and they already had turned back into Pharisees. Have a look at what he says. I've put it on your outline, the last thing there on your outline. In James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's why Jesus hated religion. Jesus hates people who say, I go to church, I sing the songs, but then go out and treat people with contempt. And Jesus hates people 
who say, I'm religious, I'm a Christian, I go to church, but then live the rest of the week never mentioning his name. Jesus hates religion. That's why religious people hated Jesus. Because Jesus does not want people who do religious things. He doesn't want people who put on a show of piety so that other people can see him, see them. He doesn't want people who post on Facebook that they're going to a prayer meeting. He doesn't want that. He wants people who come to know him and trust him and live for him, not so that other people see it, but just for him. See, religion does not excite Jesus. What does excite him is people transformed by the gospel. That's what excites Jesus. People transformed by the gospel to live lives of loving service. That is what excites our Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our amazing Lord who is the Lord seven days of the week. And we pray that we would not fall into the trap of the Pharisees. We pray that we would not stand in judgment over other people. We pray that we would not not put on a show of religion while failing to do what Jesus calls on us to do. Instead, we pray that we might know true religion, which is to trust in Christ alone for our salvation and then to live lives of loving service of him and of love to others. And we pray this in his name. Amen.